0: Exodus chapter 33 this morning, we have spent a couple of weeks on the story of the golden calf um, in Exodus chapter 32, and as we kind of turn the page and we make our way to the next chapter, the story is still with us. The sin and the rebellion of the people is still there, and God's even anger at the people is still there, and Moses' intercession on behalf of the people. It continues in chapter 33, but even as such, some things continue to work and evolve and move between God, his people, and Moses. In our passage of Scripture, God's going to say, okay, now it's time to pull up camp. They've been at the foot of Mount Sinai for quite a while now. There's so it's time to pull up camp, and we're going to start moving through the wilderness. So this is the movement now in this passage but God says something else interesting in our text this morning. Something else has changed along the way. As we go through this today, what I want us to see as much as anything is how we're learning about God's ultimate plan for the redemption of humanity, for the salvation of his people. We begin to see this come to light in some really beautiful ways this morning. We're going to watch the relationship between God, the people, and Moses continue to develop. But what that relationship is doing is it's leading us to a greater understanding of the relationship between God and his people now and his son, Jesus Christ. This story this morning, it's important for the people of God in the Old Testament. This is real for them. This is significant for them. But it also turns out that it is absolutely incredible in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he does for us. We're going to keep our eyes on that as we move forward. So in our passage today, a couple of things that we're going to keep our eyes on to help make sense of what we're going to read. First of all, God keeps his covenant promise. God keeps his covenant promise. Now, this is all the more stunning, given some of the things that not only have just happened, but some of the things that God says in this passage. God's people have sinned, but God has decided he will not destroy them at the foot of the mountain. They will continue on. In fact, there's a moment in this passage this morning where God says he is not going to go with them anymore. He's going to remove his immediate presence from them because of their sin. So this is a big deal. And it rattles Moses. And it continues to work its way through how God and his people in Moses, that relationship develops for us in this passage. So God is going to keep his covenant promise. And then Moses continues to intercede on behalf of the people of God. We get a glimpse into what the relationship was like between God and Moses, and we get a unique glimpse into that in this passage of Scripture. It turns out, the way the story is developed for us is that Moses is in an absolutely unique position to pray for the mercy of God upon people who need forgiveness. So let's read our passage of Scripture. Let's get started here in Exodus chapter 33, we we're in verse 1, So friends, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, and if for a single moment... I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This is quite the moment. Yeah, we're done with chapter 32 and we've dealt with the sin in the camp. Moses has destroyed the idol, but the wrath of God is still there because of the rebellion of his people. So there's still more to do. There's still more to be resolved between God and his people. But now it's time to leave the mountain and begin the journey in earnest. And they're going to go through the wilderness and God says, I'm going to send you to the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are other tribes that are there. My angel, my representative will go before me and we're going to drive out these other tribes, but I'm going to give you the land that I promised to your forefathers. You may remember in chapter 32 that this was part of Moses' conversation with God. When God tells Moses, here's what's happening at the foot of the mountain. They've worshiped another God. They've called it Yahweh. And so I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start all over with you. So Moses sort of stands in the gap And as he prays to God, he pleads with God, and he appeals to God. And he appeals to God's glory and mercy and covenant. He appeals specifically to the covenant as well. So he says, I want you to remember God, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that you promised to give them and their children the land. That's who's at the foot of the mountain. So God, the text says, relents. He says, I'm going to go ahead and lead my people into the promised land. This land currently has several tribes that are in it already, tribes that they're going to have to overcome, and God will be with them and go ahead of them. And this is the story of the book of Joshua. But these tribes are there, and what God is doing is he's He's judging their sin. As a matter of fact, if you go back to God's promise with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 15, one of the things that God tells Abraham is that when the sin of these tribes has come full, I will bring your people back into the land. So this is actually part of the process that God is judging their sin by bringing his people into the land. And it is that strip of land that has been the nation of Israel, one way or another for 3,000 years now. These are the people who have called this land their national home. God says, we're going to deal with their sin. I'm going to bring you into the land. And it's not just them. God actually tells his people, and if you continue to rebel against me, I will take you out of the land. As a matter of fact, God does exactly that because of their continuous sin and rebellion. That's the story of the book of Jeremiah and other parts of Scripture. But it is absolutely incredible, given the things that we have just read, the things that God says in this passage, the things that we remember about the golden calf, that though God is angry with his people and he will judge their sin, God still fulfills his covenant promises. This is absolutely incredible. Friends, in the end, What God promises to do is based on his character, not ours. It's based on his character. It's based on his immutable, unchanging holiness and righteousness. God makes promises and scripture says, one one of the things that is impossible for God to do is to lie. So as he fulfills his promises, it's because of his goodness and his righteousness and his power. Not because of our righteousness. It's based on Him. God will fulfill His covenant and complete everything that He has promised. Even if a generation continues to rebel and falls in the wilderness, God will bring His people into the promised land. And friends, in the same way, and this is is part of what's happening in the text of Exodus, as we watch God save His people from slavery, bring them through the wilderness, give them His law, establish this covenant and then lead them into the promised land, we're watching the story of salvation unfold before us. So just as God is going to fulfill his promises to his people based on his character, in the same way, friends, your salvation does not rest on your good works or even your ability to maintain perfection. That's not what your salvation is based on. It is based on the grace and the forgiveness of God. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ would not be good news if it was some version of, you need to be perfect every day of your life, and then maybe I'll let you in. That's not good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is different because it's based on him. It's based on his decision. It's based on his life, death, and resurrection. It's based on God's goodness. Friends, the gospel is not live a good life and then be loved by God. It is you are loved by God. So now we learn to live his kind of life. That's the good news. God says, so I will bring you. I will drive them out. And I will give you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. This beautiful description of the promised land. It is this symbol of a land that will be good for them and it will be fertile and it will be a good place for them to uh, set down roots and to begin to build their nation and their family and generation after generation. And it speaks to God's good will for his people. What I am bringing you to is good. What I am bringing you to is what I have designed for you and put together for you. So what God is doing with his people, then what God is doing with his people now, is he's bringing us into his good will, his good desire, the land that he has designed for us. But it's this incredible passage filled with these amazing tensions. I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. But I can't spend any more time with you because if I do, I'm going to consume you. I'm going to completely destroy you. But I will not go up among you. So there's a serious problem now that is reintroduced to the text. God is going to remove his active presence from among his people. The text even says... This is devastating news to the people of God. As Moses later on is going to go back and intercede again and pray about this, he's going to recognize that if God removes his immediate presence from his people, this means the people of God actually lose their identity They're not their own people. They're not the people who used to be Egyptians. They're not the people who belong to this Egyptian bull God, no matter how much they try to do that. They're the people who belong to the one true God. And if he is somehow separated from them, they lose who they are. And Moses recognizes this. The people recognize this. It's a loss of identity for them. It's a loss of their intimacy with God. It is a constant reminder of the consequence of their sin that they have been separated from the presence of God. I hope you're beginning to hear another story ring in the back of your heads as we walk through what's happening in this passage of Scripture. And recall, even in the earlier passage When Moses comes down the mountain, and he's got the stone tablets, and he actually sees what's happening with the golden calf, and he smashes those stones, the things written with the very finger of God, and the smashing of those stones becomes a symbol of what the people of God have just done. They have broken the covenant, the relationship that they have promised to have with their God. And we ask the question at that moment, Can that relationship, can that covenant be restored? And if so, what needs to happen? So that continues to hang over this passage of Scripture. So much so that God just says, I'm actually going to back off for a little while. I've got to cool down. (laughs) It's a way of putting it. But when the people heard the disastrous word, what they do is so interesting They know the kind of bad news that this is. Moses knows the kind of bad news that this is. And in fact, they respond well. It says they took off all of their ornaments. Now, those ornaments are what they used to make the golden calf. They had taken the gold and the jewelry and the, the gemstones that they had taken from Egypt, and Aaron turned that into a golden calf and they worshiped it. So when this happens, they do the right thing symbolically, is they take all that stuff off. God even says, you know what? Just leave it off. So they've taken the things that have come from Egypt that God intended for worship to him, and they've used it for the worship of another god, and so they take it off. The language itself reminds us of the moment when they plundered the Egyptians, when the text in the ESV says they stripped themselves of the ornaments It is a very similar word to what happens in chapter 12 when the text says they plundered the Egyptians of their wealth. So it actually reminds us, that's right, this is what the Egyptians gave them. This is what they used to create this false god. And so as the imagery unfolds for us, we recognize what's happening. The holiness of God and the unrighteousness of the people is highlighted and the incredible gap that this causes. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will destroy you. So that's what we're being reminded of. That's what the people of God here are being reminded of. Friends, God is perfect in his holiness and in his righteousness. And as such, the presence of God Cannot abide the presence of sin. So something needs to happen. God is holy and pure in his righteousness. We are sinners and cannot become pure enough to be in the presence of God. So something needs to happen. Something needs to happen to repair this unbridgeable gap between the people who need forgiveness, who are rebellious and a God who is perfectly holy and righteous. If only there were someone who is able to stand in the glorious, righteous presence of God, and who also happens to dwell amongst the rebellious, stiff-necked people of God, we might have someone who could represent the people to God and represent God to the people. So here's what happens next in this passage. Chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. This is the tabernacle. It's the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp whenever Moses went out to the tent. face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is an interesting section of Scripture because it describes what would happen later on as they are wandering through the wilderness. And so it is, in a certain sense, out of time. It fits later in their wilderness wanderings in the journey. But what the author of the book of Exodus has done, what the Holy Spirit has done for us is answer the question that we're left with at the end of that previous passage. The author has actually slipped this in, the Holy Spirit has slipped this in to say, now Moses has this really unique relationship with God. He is in this tent, the tent of meeting, and it's the tent of meeting because that's where he meets with God. This is where the people of God come to inquire of the Lord, and it is here where the Lord speaks to Moses face to face, as a man would speak with a friend. So Moses is in a unique position of being able to stand in the presence of God and amongst the people of God at the same time stand in the gap between people who need forgiveness and the God who's able to give them forgiveness. Moses, and only Moses, sees both the glory and the presence of God and lives among rebellious people who need forgiveness. The text tells us that this is where the people would go to inquire of the Lord over time, This is actually the process of the tabernacle. This is why the priests do what they do. That entire sacrificial system, it's part of their worship. It's part of their cleansing and forgiveness. It's a part of the priests maintaining the law with the people of God as they make their way through the wilderness. So this is where they would come to inquire of the Lord. This is where they would come to hear the voice of God. And Moses' habit... He would walk through the camp. He would head his way toward the tent. The people knew what he was doing, so they would come and stand in the front of their own tents, and they would worship God because that pillar of cloud would descend, and Moses would speak to the Lord. The people of God end up doing exactly the right thing. The presence of the Lord is in the camp. The presence of the Lord is with us. It is near us. And so we worship. The people of God should stop and worship when the presence of the Lord is in the camp. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Later on in this chapter is another one of these sort of famous moments where Moses actually sees God sort of face to face almost. Moses actually asks if he can see the glory of God. And God says, look, if you actually see me, you will die. So he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he veils him with his hand and then lifts his hand. And what Moses sees is, uh, is, is, uh, is from behind. And that's where he sees God and, and the throne of God, and his face is shining. And the people can even look at Moses because of uh, his presence with God and his relationship with God. So that's coming later on. But here we learn about this unique and profound relationship between Moses and his Lord. And in this way, Moses' relationship with God is unique. But there's someone else in this tent. This is a part of what moves me so much about this passage of Scripture. Joshua is still there. And when Moses leaves the tent and goes back, what does the text say Joshua does? He stays in the tent. This passage of Scripture is describing to us this unique relationship that Moses has with God, but it is also putting the rest of us in the place of Joshua. Are you willing to stay in the tent? Are you willing to seek after the face of God, to be in the presence of God, to seek after a relationship with God, a genuine communication with the Lord your God? Are you willing to stay there? So it's speaking of, it's moving us in the direction of this unique relationship that the God, the creator of all things, the mighty God who brought the plagues and split the Red Sea, actually communicates with his people and wants to be in relationship with you, the kind of relationship that not only saves you and transforms you, but friends will every now and then absolutely overwhelm you. I'm telling you, you find that glimpse of the glory of God, and it floors you. It's stunning to me that this God wants to be in relationship with his people, He wants us to know him. And this is by and large the language that the prophets use when they call the people of God back to him. This is very much the language that the apostles use in the New Testament when they write their epistles about what they want you to have with God. They want you to know God. They want you to understand Jesus Christ. And this knowledge is not a knowledge of historical information, a list of facts, some mathematical equations. It's the knowledge of relationship. It is interactive relationship with the Lord your God. So scripture is constantly calling the people of God into that relationship. I love this particular passage of scripture. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul and the epistles really pray this a lot. They desire this a lot for you and for me. And this is just one of these passages, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 say this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. How have Paul and his missionary team prayed for the church at Colossae? asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The knowledge of God actually becomes transformational in the way I do daily life. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Moses is face to face with God, but there's someone else in the tent who wants that. There's someone else in the tent who sees more value in the relationship with God than he sees at the bottom of the mountain with Aaron and the rest of the people who rebel against God. He sees more value in what Moses has, and he says, that's what I want. This is where I'm going to be. Joshua won't depart from the tent. This young man, a young leader who knows where the presence of God is and just doesn't want to leave it. We're picking up these breadcrumbs about the life of Joshua in the book of Exodus. He shows up a few times in this book. He becomes significant later on. As the people of God are wandering through the wilderness, they come up right against Uh, The promised land, Moses sends the spies into the land. Two of them are Joshua and Caleb. And they come back, and they come back with this incredible story. Sure enough, the land is filled with milk and honey. It would be a great place to live. The problem is, is there's really mean people who live there. There's giants there, and we can't do it. And so Joshua and Caleb say, you people are a bunch of idiots. Yes, we can. God said he would give it to us, and we need to go. They're the minority report. They're the ones who are ready to lead the people of God into the land of God. Where do you think that courage started? Joshua is in the tent. He wants more of God. He's becoming the man who is ready to stand when everyone else fails. You see, it's that moment in the wilderness as the spies come back, the rest of them convince the rest of the camp there's no way on earth We can conquer the promised land. And that's when God says, you know what? Back out into the wilderness until an entire rebellious generation is dead. Then we'll come back and we'll do it with Joshua and Caleb. Who's going to be ready to stand when everyone else is ready to fail? Friends, the church is being shaken right now. It's just absolutely being shaken right now. And the church needs, Christ needs, we need people who are like Joshua and not like the rest of the spies. We need people who are ready to stand when it's become, going to become so easy to fall. That's how the people of God are going to enter the promised land. So friends, there is so much happening in this passage of Scripture because we're at this inflection point. The people of God know it. And Moses knows it later in this chapter as he prays with God. And we'll get to that next time. But we're at this inflection point between God and his people. Think again of everything that God has done to free his people from slavery. He has openly shown a powerful hand on behalf of a slave nation who had no power to free themselves. He brings the plagues. He destroys the Egyptian gods. He frees them from the most powerful empire on earth in their day and age. He leads them through the wilderness. He parts the Red Sea. He descends on top of the mountain of Sinai. And the people's reaction is, you know what? That's not enough. We're going to build another god and we're going to worship another God. So this is the inflection point that we're at. But God will be faithful enough to his promise to not only save them, but to bring them all the way into the promised land. And this happens because of Moses' intercession. Moses cares for the good of God's people even though he knows how sinful they are and how their sins need to be forgiven and how their lives need to change. He cares for the good of the people of God. At the same time, Moses cares for the glory and the righteousness and the holiness of God. Neither one of these things can be diminished, but both of these things need to be dealt with at the same time. So Moses is willing to intercede before God. Remember your promises. Don't destroy these people. Bring them into the promised land. Forgive them of their sins. And he also is able to go among the people and say, you need to stop your idolatry and worship God alone. This is the unique role that Moses is filling. And as great as Moses is, what we're learning about It's the one who comes later who is greater than even Moses. You see, the story that we've been telling now for chapter after chapter after chapter is why Jesus Christ came, what he does for us. We're learning more and more about Christ. Friends, listen to this, because this is important, the way this moves for us and the way it changes with Jesus Christ. If you are a child of God, God will not leave you because Jesus intercedes for you, because Jesus brings a new and better covenant, and because God, through his son, Jesus Christ, saves you by his grace. It is God who accomplishes all of this by his will, by his power, and by his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of these details here this morning. Moses was interceding on behalf of the people of God, and it saves their lives. You go back to chapter 32, verse 12, Moses actually says to God, "'Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people.'" So Moses appeals to God at the moment of wrath, and he appeals to the covenant promise, God's glory and the mercy of God, and it saves the people of God. And then we read this in the New Testament, in this incredible chapter right in the middle of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Your Savior is standing in the gap for you even now. It's not because of your righteousness, it's because of his righteousness and our Savior interceding for us. God's covenant, even though His people break it at the foot of the mountain, God's covenant will be fulfilled by the power and by the righteousness of God, not by their good deeds or our good deeds and our perfection. We read this once a month, and we're going to read it again later this morning, as Jesus sits with His disciples at the Last Supper, Matthew 26, 28, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is his blood now that seals the perfect covenant. Hebrews 12, 24 even says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. It's not the Passover lamb, it's not the high priest, it's not the sacrifices that need to be made day after day after day after day. Jesus has made the sacrifice once for all and is seated at the right hand of the heavenly father. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And then this thing that we saw last week that just overwhelmed me. Moses, who is innocent of the sin of the people, identifies with them so that they might be saved from the wrath of God. Remember, Aaron is guilty of their sin. And when he's given a chance to repent and change that, he deflects, he says, I'm not actually any, I'm not like any of these crazy people. They're the ones who sinned, not me. And we all know Aaron's the one who led them into sin. Moses comes down the mountain completely innocent of their sin. And he tells God, if you are not going to forgive them, then don't forgive me either and wipe us out. It's stunning that Moses does that. And it's because he identifies with the people of God that he is able to deal with their sin and not Aaron. So Jesus, who is God in flesh among us, lived a sinless life so that he becomes our great high priest, our savior. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The one innocent man dies the death that we deserve to die so that we might be saved. Jesus is in the completely unique position, not only knowing the glory of God, but being one with the Father, and then also living amongst the people of God in human flesh. He is our Savior, and he is our faithful brother. And so it is the work of Christ that reconciles us to God and gives us a way to live with God now and for all of eternity. I couldn't go through this story without coming back to this section of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the first five verses go like this. And think again of this in terms of what's happening here in Exodus 32 and 33, the division between God and sinful people. And Moses is working at standing in the gap and what is needed to make this happen, the reconciliation to happen. Here's how the apostle Paul describes it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What did God say about his people? If I was too close to you right now, I would destroy you because of my wrath. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will finish what he promised to do because God desires that you are saved. Jesus takes the justice that I deserve and gives me the mercy I need. Jesus takes the justice that I deserve and gives me the mercy that I need. Charles Spurgeon, again, the great pastor theologian, I love the way he puts this. Dear soul, sit down and behold the justice of God that must punish sin and see the punishment being carried out on your Lord Jesus. Then fall before him in humility and joy and kiss the dear feet of him whose blood has atoned for your sin. Let's pray.